0: True Gay Crime contains coarse language, adult themes, and content that is violent and disturbing. If at any time you feel you need help, please refer to the toll-free crisis lines in the show notes. Welcome to TGC, True Gay Crime. I'm your host, Patrick Morano, and in this episode, we're going to be looking at the Scottish serial killer, Dennis Andrew Nilsson. Canada is part of the Commonwealth, right? So I grew up feeling for somehow like this umbilical cord to the motherland, which I do have some British blood in me. I'm mostly French and Italian, but there's British too. So, but, you know, the British, the Commonwealth, the crown, I mean, you know, the queen is on our money. Uh, So I've always felt this like umbilical cord to the motherland. So I always was fascinated with like, English history... Well, first of all, I'm a history nerd anyway, so I like castles and queens and, you know, knights in shining armor. They always make it look so glamorous on TV, but you know it was so disgusting in real life. Like, you know everybody smelled. It must have been disgusting. Like, I don't know... I know that they had 20 children out of necessity because you needed people to work the land, and basically you lost half of them in childbirth... I mean, the God, this poor woman who gave birth to like 20 children or whatever is just ridiculous. But how are you even having sex? Like, never mind your private parts, but your breath? Like, you're missing teeth. Your 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 breath is disgusting. Your hair is itchy and gross. Like, and then you're working out in the fields all day, your hands are scabby, and then your underarm imagine the underarms. Ew! And then like your ass? Like where are you taking a dump, first of all? Because okay, when you watch a movie and it's from those times, right? Like say medieval times, or even like Yeah, okay, that's a good time. The medieval times, right? Or or anywhere around those ages, right? Or like the fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth century. Like, where are you poo you're pooing? Okay, they first of all, they only show you, like, the rich people that are wearing, like, the best gowns, and they're always clean, and they never show them pooing in their chamber pots and the chambermaids maids and, uh, you know, removing bowls of poo from under the bed, and you never see them, like, shitting outside, or, like, you know, they would sit on these, like, little stone toilets in, like, a turret in the castle, and then their poo would just, like, slide down the side... <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the poo is falling so you're like, say you're going for a walk you're like, oh honey, this is so romantic and then you can see the poo sliding down the side of the castle never mind the pile of poo and urine and stuff that is at the base of the castle like, talk about that was obviously that was a part of the castle that no one would wander around. I mean, actually, that would be a good place to put somebody that you hated. You know, you'd like tie them up. And what's wrong with me? You tie them up and then you put them under the poo chute. And then they just get shit on all day. You know, like if you didn't want to kill them, let's say you just wanted to like really <laughs> make them smelly. Um. Wow. What happened there? Where am I right now? Oh, right. Movies are just showing... Oh, right, the glamorized version. What are we talking about? Oh, England, right. So, I love all that. But I actually wish that they would show us the more dirty side. I I would love... Actually, I think there is a special on toilets. I'm fascinated by toilets. Because, first of all, to me, a toilet or the toilet situation of a culture and a time and a place really shows you how the people are living. To me... It really gives a good glimpse of what life is like in that moment, in that place, whatever the toilet is, right? I think it's fascinating. I would, lo- I would watch a whole documentary on toilets, like starting from like caveman. Well, I guess they just shit in the bushes, but you know what I mean? Like, oh, and then, oh, oh, to- like toilets throughout the ages, If that exists, somebody please let me know, because that would be fascinating for me. My point was, of all this, is that when I went to England for the first time, in my head it was so glamorized, like, just the stories and the people, oh, the accent, oh, everything is so, like, glamorous and whatever. And then you get there and you're like, oh, it's just like any other overcrowded, dirty city everywhere, okay? And actually, this pub isn't that great, because in my head, I thought, you know i had I had glamorized pubs too, because I watch Coronations. I'm a huge coronation street fan. I know all right, don't judge me don't does anyone here watch Coronation Street? well, anyway, if you do, you will get addicted because yes, they're sad and yes, it's depressing, and yes, they're poor and it's dirty, but it's it's like we say in French la petite vie it's the small life, and I love it. I love it um. But yeah, so there's uh, the pub on there is the the Rover's Return pub. And I just was, I've always been like, oh, I want to go to the Rover's Return. I want to sit and have drinks with these people and, you know, talk about my day. And I just built it up in my mind. And then when I went there, I was like, oh, this is a pub. It's just an overly bright room selling pints of beer. Like, I don't, we did go to a cool one that was in the country. mm. That was super old. It was like hundreds and hundreds of years old. So that was kind of neat because I'm a nerd that way. But um, I was there the first time at the end of November. And I remember thinking, somebody told me, they said, ooh, Patrick, you better dress, better dress warmly. And I was like, dude, I'm from Canada. What do you mean dress warmly? I can basically go to any other country and be immune to the weather. That's what I thought. No, it's not true. I was in London at the end of November. It was hideous. The rain was coming down sideways. Like, the umbrella... Like, you had to hold the umbrella sideways in front of you. And not the wrong way, because then it would flip inside out. Because the wind was so strong. And the rain was so wet. And the wind was so cold. It just went right through my body. Like I was not, I know I can do minus 20 degrees Celsius outside, go for a walk, ride a bike. No problem. I'm Canadian. No, this was a different kind of cold. This was that wet, damp cold that goes right to your bones and just chills you. And, and, and then you can't even get warm after that. Like when you get home, you have to like take a bath or sit in front of a fire. Literally, it was bone-chilling. That's where that expression must come from. It must come from England. Most of them do. Bone-chilling. Anyway, it, it brought back all those memories when I was doing the research for David Nilsen. But I'm really excited to watch the Sundance. Uh, it's on Sundance, and it's the. It's called Des. And it's starring David Tennant, who played Doctor Who. And in this one, he plays David Nilsson. So it's very... Courant and um, because Nilsson just died in prison so then they're like oh better cash out and make a movie so yeah I got a bit of backlash for that but David Tennant is a fabulous actor and I've seen the stills and he looks like him which is really creepy so I'm sure it's fantastic so the sources that I used for Dennis Nilsson are Wikipedia of course the dailymail.co.uk has uh, an article by Monica Griep um, there's, oh, there's an amazing YouTube, um, it's a whole long thing, um, called British Serial Killer on YouTube. And it's by, uh, narrated by Donald McIntyre. So that's must-see TV. And also biography.com was very helpful. So, without further ado, here is the gruesome tale Dennis Nilsson was born November twenty-third, nineteen forty-five, in Fraserburgh, Aberdeenshire, which is just a fishing port in Scotland, small, tiny place of thirteen thousand people as of twenty eleven. Nilsson was the second of three children born to Elizabeth Duthie White and Olav Magnus Muxheim, who later changed his surname to Nilsson. The couple divorced in nineteen forty-eight. Her parents, Andrew and Lily White who never approved of their daughter's first choice of husband, were very supportive of her daughter and grandchildren following the divorce. Nilsen describes his grandfather as his, quote, great hero and protector. In 1951, Nilsen's grandfather died of a heart attack at the age of 62, and Nilsson later described this as his most vivid childhood memory, while his mother was crying and him being taken into a room where his grandfather lay in an open coffin, this is where he sees a body for the first time. In the years following the death of his grandfather, Nilsson became more quiet and withdrawn. He had his own brush with death when he was alone on the beach in 1954 and he became submerged under the water and almost dragged out to sea, but he was saved by another youth who dragged him ashore. His mother then marries a builder named Andrew Scott with whom she had four more children. Four more. So she already had three. Okay. Close your legs. The family moved to Sh- Streichen, which is a small village in Aberdeenshire. So, small town people, in 1955. When he hit puberty, Nilsson discovered he was gay, which he was ashamed of, naturally. He kept his sexuality hidden from his family and his few friends. One time he caressed and fondled the body of his older brother, when he thought he was sleeping, and because of this, his brother Olaf Jr. began to suspect his brother was gay, and he would belittle him in public, calling him hen, which is just a Scottish dialect for girl. As Nilsson grew up, he found life in strict and boring, and with limited career opportunities, and began to resent the fact that his family was poorer than most of his peers, and his mother and stepfather we were making absolutely zero effort to better their lifestyle. So, at the age of 14, he joins the Army Cadet Force, hoping eventually the British Army would be a good way to get out of rural Scotland. Which is a tale as old as time. People fleeing rural beginnings. All right, Nielsen finished school in 1961 and tells his mom that he wants to join the Army and train as a chef. Nelson passed the entrance exams and was to enlist for nine years of service in September 1961. He said he loved the army and excelled in his duties, saying, quote, it was the happiest of my life. While stationed in Aldershot, Nilsen's feelings, which he's been trying to suppress, began to stir, but he kept his sexual orientation hidden from his colleagues, of course. Nilsson never showered with others for fear of getting an erection, but instead bathed alone in the bathroom, which gave him the privacy to masturbate. In mid-1964, Nilsson was officially assigned to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers in Osnabrück, West Germany. That's a lot of words. He described himself and his colleagues as a hard-working boozy lot. So, this is where he starts to drink, and drinking becomes a theme in his life. His colleagues say he drank to excess to get over his shyness. And on one occasion, Nilsson and a German youth drank themselves ridiculous. And when Nielsen Nils- came to, he found him on the floor with the German youth's place. Apparently nothing sexual happened, but the incident fueled Nilsson's sexual fantasies, which involved a sexual partner basically a young, slender male, being completely passive. These fantasies gradually evolved into his partner being unconscious and eventually dead. Nielsen passed his official catering exam, and in 1967, he was deployed to the state of Aden, which is a region in Saudi Arabia. Nielsen was kidnapped there by an Arab taxi driver who beat him unconscious and put him in the trunk of his car but nilsen was uh, being taken out of the car he came to he grabbed the jack handle and he knocked out the driver and he beat him unconscious he put him in the trunk and he ran for his life it's at this time that he developed fantasies about sex with an unconscious body as he masturbated while looking at his own nude body in the mirror i guess he was starting to uh He got a taste for violence, too, in Aden. Nilsson eventually ended his 11-year military career at the rank of corporal in October 1972. So in 72, Nilsson moves back with his family. He takes this opportunity to try to reassess his life and find his next career path. His mother takes the opportunity to say how concerned she is that he doesn't have a girlfriend and that he's not thinking about marriage. One night, Nilsson joined his older brother, Olaf Jr., this guy's a total dickhead, and his sister-in-law, and they're watching a documentary about gay men. So, what do you think happens? Everyone treats the topic with scorn and contempt, and they're making fun of it, except Nilsson. He spoke in defense of gay rights. Of course, a fight started, and his bitch-ass older brother, Olaf, went tattletaling to his mother that Dennis was gay. Nilsson never speaks to his brother again. He moves to London to join the Metropolitan Police, only staying in touch with his family uh, through letters from time to time. So, in 1973, Nilsson completed his training and was posted to Willesden Green, which is in northwest London, as a junior constable. He enjoyed the work, but he missed the camaraderie of the army. I think he probably missed the showers. Oh, no, he didn't do that part. He begins to drink alone in the evenings. And during the summer and autumn of 1973, Nielsen began frequenting gay pubs and engaged in several casual liaisons with men. He hated the casual hookups, calling them, quote, soul destroying. But in August, following a failed relationship, Nielsen came to the conclusion that his personal lifestyle was at odds with his job. And in December, he resigned from the police. So obviously there was homophobia within the police department and Nilsson felt that he couldn't be himself in that environment. So he quits the police. He's not there very long. That same month, his birth father dies, leaving each of his three children £1,000 each. Nilsson then worked as a security guard, then as a civil servant in May 1974. He was initially posted to a job center where his primary role was to find employment for unskilled laborer. At work, Nilsson was known to be quiet, conscientious employee. Aren't they always? It's always the quiet ones. I mean, that's a saying. That's a saying that exists for a reason. In November 1975, Nilsson meets a 20-year-old named David Galachan, and this guy is being harassed outside of a pub by two other guys. So Nilsson steps in, And he basically saves Galachan from this harassment. Uh, He brings Galachan to his room in Cricklewood District, North London, and they spend the evening drinking and talking, and they totally click, they hit it off, and they decide to move in together and look for a larger place. So they found that place at the now infamous address of 195 Melrose Avenue, in a ground floor unit. Over the following months, Nilsen and Galachan redecorated and furnished the entire place. Nilsen was the breadwinner in the relationship, and although he admits to being sexually attracted to Galachan, the pair seldom had intercourse. So, they're more like buddies. With benefits. Within a year, the superficial relationship became the, between the two men was strained, and they slept in separate beds, and they started bringing home other guys. Galachan insisted... Nilsson had never been violent, but that he could be verbally abusive, and the pair began arguing more and more in 1976. And after a heated argument, in May 1977, when I was one month old, Nilsson ordered Galachan to leave the residence. Of course, Galachan later says that it was him that ended the relationship. Either way, they were done, they split up, Galachan moves out. By late 1978, Nilsen was living alone. Pom pom bum. It's the beginning of the end, everyone. He had three failed relationships and thought he was impossible to live with. He threw himself into work, which is never a good idea, and drank himself stupid at night. Sounds like a good idea in theory, but also not a great idea. And so begins the murders. Nilsen killed his first victim, 14-year-old Stephen Holmes, On December 30th, 1978, Holmes met Nielsen in the Cricklewoods Arms pub, where an underage Holmes, okay, the dude's 14, he's 14, he was trying to buy booze, right, at the pub. So, Nielsen, who had been drinking all day, met Holmes, and he lures him back to his place with the promise of alcohol. So, Nielsen apparently thought the boy was 17, but, I mean, is that better? 14? 17? Like, they're still babies. At this place, they drank a lot, they pass out, and in the morning, Nilsson says he was, quote, afraid to wake him in case he left me. So, after caressing and sleeping with the boy, Nilsson decided Holmes should stay with me over New Year, whether he wanted to or not. So, he gets a necktie, he straddles the boy, and he strangles him into unconsciousness. Then... He drowns him in a bucket of water. He washed the body in the tub, put it in the bed, caressed it, masturbated twice over the body, and hid the body under the floorboards for eight months until later on he built a bonfire in the backyard and burned the body. He says, this is a quote, I eased him into his new bed beneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or had started to decompose. I disinterred him and pulled the dirt-stained youth up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed the body. There was practically no discoloration, and his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than I had put him down there. That was Nilsen's written recollections of the ritual he observed after the murder of this his first victim. On October 11, 1979, Nilsson attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho. They met at the pub, and of course, he lures him back with the promise of sex. It's either sex or alcohol in, this, in these cases. Nilsson attempts to strangle Ho, who managed to get away and report the incident to police. Nilsson was questioned in relation to the incident, but Ho decided not to press charges. This of course is another example of the police having the perpetrator right in their face and they don't have enough to keep them on December 3rd, 1979 Nielsen encountered a 23 year old Canadian student named Kenneth Okenden. Nielsen met Okenden at a West End pub and when he learned that he was a tourist, Nielsen offered to show him the sights. He lured him home with the promise of food and more drinks. This is the other thing. Nilsson lures these guys home with food, sex, and drinks. A lot of them have a meal with him, so I don't know if he fancied himself some kind of, like, Jamie Oliver or something. But I don't know if he was a good cook, but a lot of people came home for food with this guy. So I don't know what he was making. At his place, Nilsson gave the Canadian student his headphones to listen to music. And with the sound drowning out his hearing, Nilsson crept up behind him and pulled the cord around his neck. He dragged Okenden across the floor, strangling him along the way until he died. The next day, Nilsson bought a Polaroid camera and photographed Okenden's body in suggestive positions. He then laid Okenden's corpse spread-eagled and watched television for hours before wrapping the body in plastic bags and putting it beneath the floorboards. Here's the other thing that I'm confused about. Are these floorboards? I mean, I know that this was an older place, but, like, what a fucking, like, horror movie thing to do to hide bodies in the floorboards. Like, that's such a classic, cliche thing to do. And I'm just trying to think of all the places I've lived in in my life, and I can't imagine any of them had space in the floor where you could hide bodies. I mean, the floorboards wouldn't even come up, let alone, I mean... Maybe I'd, Listen, maybe I lived on top of bodies and I didn't even know. I mean, seriously. Blah. So on four times, at least during the next two weeks, Nilsson would bring Akendan's body up from the floorboards and sit him in the armchair beside him as he drank and watched TV like they were friends. He later told police that Akendan's body and skin were, quote, very beautiful. Adding the sight almost brought him to tears. Nielsen killed his third victim, 16-year-old Martin Duffy, on May 17, 1980. Duffy was a catering student from Birkenhead, Mayorside, which is near Liverpool, who had hitchhiked to London without his parents' knowledge. Not a good idea. Tell people where you're going. For four, for four days, Duffy had slept rough near Euston Railway Station, before Nilsen crossed his path, returning from Southport on business. Duffy was tired and hungry, took Nilsen's offer of food and a bed. When Duffy fell asleep, Nilsen sat on his chest and with a band and strangled him unconscious. Then he drags him to the kitchen and drowns him in the sink. Then he bathed the body, sat it in a chair, then in the bed, masturbated on it and put it in the floorboards. After Duffy, Nielsen began killing more frequently, as if that wasn't frequent enough. Before 1980 was up, he killed five more times and had one attempted murder. Only one of the victims, 26-year-old William David Sutherland, was ever identified. The accumulated bodies under Nielsen's floorboards attracted insects and created a bad smell, particularly in the summer months. When he'd bring bodies up from the floorboards, he noticed they were covered in in maggots. Dear God. The maggots were crawling out of the eyes and mouth. Why was he holding on to the bodies so long? You know, is my question. I mean, you're holding on to evidence all as well. Like and it smells, and my god, he'd put deodorants there to stop the smell twice a day, but the smell and decay stayed. In late 1980, Nilsen cut in pieces the bodies of each victim he killed since December 1979. So basically, there was an accumulation of bodies that he had kept. He ran out of room, and so he brought the bodies up from the floorboards, he cut them up, and he put a bonfire outside in the backyard to get rid of them. To disguise the smell of the burning flesh of the six dissected bodies, Nilsson put an old car tire on top because... That smells really bad. Three neighborhood children stood to watch the fire, and when the bonfire was reduced to ashes and cinders, Nilsson used a rake and looked for bones and found a skull that he smashed with the rake. On about January 4th, 1981, Nielsen encountered an 18-year-old blue-eyed Scott at the Golden Lion Pub in Soho. He lured the young man home with the promise of a drinking contest. He strangled his victim, put him beneath the floorboards, he then killed two more unidentified youths, one he described as an English skinhead he met in Leicester Square, the other a Belfast boy in his 20s. He later casually reflected, quote, end of the day, end of the drink, end of the person. Floorboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street. The final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow, who Nielsen discovered slumped against a wall outside his home on September 17th, 1981. When he asked what was wrong, the man said that he, his meds that he got for his epilepsy had made him really weak. So he had collapsed there. Just bad luck. Nielsen called the ambulance and the man recovered in the hospital. Here comes the bad luck. The next day, Barlow returns to Nielsen to thank him for his help. Dear God, like you escaped it once, you're not going to escape it a second time. He was invited in, he ate, he drank, he fell asleep. That's the other thing. They always fall asleep. There's no mention of drugs. There's no mention of Nilsen drugging the food or drugging the drink. So I don't know why all of them fell asleep. They're all so tired that they fall asleep. I, it would take me a lot to pass out at somebody's house, because I'm very uncomfortable in in that setting. I'm very aware that I'm not in my home, so for all of these people to pass out, it's alarming. And they're all eating too, so obviously Nielsen liked to cook, and I don't presumably was a good cook. I don't know. Nielsen strangled Barlow while he slept and stuck his body under the kitchen sink. So he didn't even get to go on the floorboards. Now he's putting them under the sink. He's running out of room is what's going on. In mid-1981, Nielsen's landlord decides to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue and asks Nielsen to vacate. Can you imagine? You're Nielsen. You have people under the floorboards. You have people under the sink. There's blood. There's maggots. It smells horrendous. And then your landlord is like, hey, I want to renovate. You have to get out. This isn't just about finding some boxes and packing up a lamp and your bookcase. This is like, you need to destroy all the evidence and clean the shit out of this apartment because it's gonna be super obvious because they don't want him to to vacate just to replace him with somebody else. They're gonna renovate, which means they're probably gonna pull up the floorboards. Nielsen eventually accepted an offer of 1,000 pounds from the landlord to leave the residence. Having removed the bodies and burning them in the backyard, It's then that he moved into an attic flat at 23D Cranley Gardens in the Muswell Hill District of North London on October 5th, 1981. But again, the cleanup at the Melrose Place must have been horrendous. I mean, just think of the work. Just having to cut up the bodies and putting them in bags and then bringing them down to a bonfire and then cleaning up the blood and the the internal organs that are everywhere. Like, the fact that, and there's no mention of this, the fact that the guy who renovated the Melrose Avenue... Did I call it Melrose Place before? It's it's Melrose Avenue, by the way. It's not Melrose Place. Heather Locklear was not there. The fact that the guy who renovated Melrose Avenue didn't see anything suspicious in that bottom unit of his building is really bizarre to me. I mean, that goes to show you that he must have done a that Nilsen must have done a super good job in cleaning up. Crazy. Okay, so now he's moved. Nilsen is at 23 Cranley Gardens. The address is different. The murdering is the same. Nilsen moved from his Melrose address to 23 Cranley Gardens, where he didn't have access to a back garden. Instead, he lived in the attic, which was not as convenient for him. For two months, he had hookups with no assault at all, except for an attempted strangulation of a 19-year-old student named Paul Nobbs on November 23rd, 1981. But Nielsen stopped himself from completing the act. Oh, wow. What an angel. In March 1982, Nielsen encountered 23-year-old John Howlett while drinking in a pub near Leicester Square. Howlett was lured to Nielsen's place, how do you think? That's right, with the promise of more drinks. There they watched a film, then Howlett went to the front room and passed out in the bed. Again, passing out. The passing out. I don't i don't understand. He must have been drugging them. Nilsson tried to wake Howlett an hour later but couldn't, then sat there drinking rum and he was contemplating killing him. So he wasn't sure if he should or shouldn't. But he finally decided, yeah, you know what, I'm going to do this. There was a huge struggle because this guy was strong. But eventually, Howlett was strangled unconscious. It took three times for Howlett breathing again and Nilsen strangling him again before he dragged him to the tub. This guy did not want to die. Nilsen filled the bath with water, and that's where he drowned him. Nilsson's neck had the victim's finger impressions on it for a week where Howlett tried to choke him back. So he was a very strong person who wanted to live. It's very sad. In May 1982, Nielsen encountered Carl Stodder, a 21-year-old gay man who was at the Black Cat Pub in Camden. Nielsen struck up a conversation with Stodder, discovering he was depressed following a failed relationship. This guy just had a failed relationship, and now he's about to have a horrible experience. After plying him with alcohol, of course, Nielsen invited Stodder back to his place where they continued to drink, before what? Falling asleep. On a sleeping bag this time. Stodder woke up to himself being strangled while Nilsen whispered, quote, Stay still. At first, Stodder thought Nilsen was trying to get him free of the sleeping bag, and then he heard running water, and then he was suddenly underwater and knew that he was trying to be drowned. He cried, No more, please, no more, then went under again. Nilsen, thinking he was dead, seated the man in the armchair, then he realized he was alive. And then, for some reason, he decides to keep him alive. So he rubs his limbs to get the circulation going, and he covers him in blankets, and he puts him in bed. When Stotter comes to, Nilsen kissed him and tried to convince him that he almost strangled himself on the sleeping bag, and that he had saved him. That's a very thin lie. I mean, I've been camping. I don't remember the sleeping bag attacking me. Over the next two days, Stodder was in and out of consciousness until he had the strength to be taken to a railway station and sent home. This guy was fucking lucky, though. Seriously? He was basically dead. He had a little bit of life in him. And then Nilsson brings him back to life. But not only that, If they had left in that moment, it's kind of like, okay, it was a a shock, and then he made a quick snap decision, I'm going to keep this one alive, and then get him out of the house. But Stoddard was in and out of consciousness for two days at this serial killer's house. At any point during those two days, Nielsen could have decided to kill him. But he didn't, and Stoddard got away. Lucky. Well, I mean, not lucky to have the experience, lucky to have survived. In June 1982, Nilsen encountered a 27-year-old named Graham Allen, trying to hail a taxi in Shaftesbury Avenue, which is a major street in the West End. Allen accepted Nilsen's offer to accompany him to Cranley Gardens for what? A meal this time. Nilsen crept up behind Allen as he ate with the full intention of murdering him. Allen's body sat in the tub for three days before Nielsen started to dissect it on the kitchen floor. On January 26th, 1983, Nielsen killed his final victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Sinclair was last seen by acquaintances in the company of Nielsen, and they were walking towards a tube station. At Nielsen's place, Sinclair drank, of course, but he went a step further because Sinclair... Was a heroin addict, so he also did heroin there. He falls asleep in a drug and alcohol induced stupor. Now that one I get. This one I get. Passing out on heroin. Hello, and alcohol. Nilsson approached Sinclair, knelt before him, and said to himself, quote, Oh, Stephen, here I go again. Before strangling Sinclair with a ligature made from a necktie and a rope. Following his usual ritual of bathing the body, Nielsen laid Sinclair's body on the bed, applied talcum powder, then arranged three mirrors around the bed before lying naked alongside the dead boy. He turned Stephen's head towards him, kissed him on the forehead, and said, Good night, Stephen. Nielsen then fell asleep alongside the body. When he woke up, he dissected Sinclair's body with various dismembered parts wrapped in plastic and stored in either a wardrobe, a tea chest, or a drawer under the bathtub. Nielsen tried getting rid of the flesh, internal organs, and smaller bones All of all three of his victims killed at Cranley Gardens by flushing their dissected remains down the toilet. So this is a huge turning point in his killing spree because at his old address, he had access to the backyard where he had built a bonfire and was getting rid of the bodies, the accumulated bodies in this bonfire. But here at the Cranley Gardens address... He was living in the attic, so he didn't have access to the backyard. So what does he do? He starts flushing things down the toilet. He also continued a practice that he had started at Melrose Avenue with the other victims he had killed, where he boils the head, hands, and feet to remove the flesh off of these parts of the body. On February 4th, 1983, Nielsen wrote a letter complaining that the drains at Cranley Gardens were blocked and that the situation for both himself and the other tenants of the property was intolerable. He wrote the letter to the landlord saying that the pipes were blocked. Hello, Nilsson, you're cramming body parts and bones down the toilet. Of course the pipes are blocked. Fascinating that he Because this is an intelligent person by all accounts. For him to complain about the pipes when he should have full well known that it was him that was causing the blockage. I don't understand. That's a weird blind spot. The only thing I can kind of think is maybe at this point he wanted to get caught. I mean, there's no other explanation, honestly. I mean, he's the one that made the complaint. Right? You're basically calling them to ground zero. So maybe part of him was tired of it all and just wanted to get caught. Don't know. Nielsen's murders were first discovered by a Dino Rod employee. Dino Rod is basically an emergency drainage plumbing company out of the UK. So the guy that worked at Dino Rod, his name was Michael Catran, and he responded to the plumbing complaints made by Nielsen and other tenants of Cranley Gardens in February 1983. When Katran opened a drain on the side of the house, he noticed a flesh-like substance and small bones. Before leaving at dusk, it was getting too dark to work, so he had to leave, but Nielsen asked Katran what the problem was. And when he heard that it looked like human flesh, Nielsen says, quote, it looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'm sure at that point he started to freak out a little bit, because... At 7.30 a.m. the following morning, Katran and his boss, Wheeler, returned to Cranley Gardens to investigate a little bit more, right? But, of course, what do you think? The drain is cleared at this point. So, see, Nilsen isn't completely stupid. He went and he cleared the stuff out of the drain. So this seems suspicious to them, but even more suspicious was when Katran found more flesh and four more bones in a pipe. So they call the police and the police find more flesh and bones in the same pipe. So these remains are taken to the mortuary where pathologist Professor David Bowen Bowen told the police that the remains were in fact human. When they investigated, Detective Chief Inspector Peter Jay learned the flesh in the pipes was coming from the attic unit of the property and waited outside Cranley Gardens for Nielsen to return from work. When he did, DCIJ introduced himself and his colleagues explaining they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drains and requested access to the attic to discuss the matter further. The three officers followed Nielsen upstairs, where they immediately noted the odor of rotting flesh. Nielsen was told the blockage had been caused by human remains. He pretended to be shocked, saying, quote, "'Good grief, how awful!' Good grief. Who says good gr- How old, old-timey speak is this? In response, DCI J replies, Don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? Don't mess about. Again, old-timey speak. Nielsen responded calmly, admitting that the remainder of the body could be found in two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe, from which DCI Jay and his colleagues said there was an overpowering smell of decomposition. They asked Nielsen whether there was any other body parts to be found, to which Nielsen replied, it's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest. Not here at the police station. See, that actually goes to my theory from before, where it kind of feels like he was done and wanted to get caught at this point. He was then arrested and cautioned on suspicion of murder and was escorted to the police station. Thank God he's in custody No, People are safe. Nilsen was asked whether the remains belonged to one person or two, and staring out of the window of the police car, Nilsen replies, fifteen or sixteen since 1978." That evening, a detective and Superintendent Chambers accompanied DCI Jay and Professor Bowen to Cranley Gardens, where they found one bag with two dissected torsos and a shopping bag containing various internal organs a human skull with almost no flesh a severed head and a torso with arms attached but hands missing the fingerprints on one body matched those on police files of sinclair you'll remember sinclair was the last victim who had done heroin and passed out at 5:40 pm on february 11th nielsen was charged with sinclair's murder and police interviewed nielsen on 16 separate occasions over the following days The interviews totaled over 30 hours. Nilsson explained that the decision to kill was not made until moments before he did it. Once the victim had been killed, he typically bathed the victim's body, shaved any hair from the torso to conform to his physical ideal of them being smooth, and he applied makeup to any obvious blemishes on the skin. A lot of these guys, well at least half of them, were sort of uh, living on the streets or under the radar, had drug problems so their their constitution wasn't very good i'm sure their skin wasn't very good so he was covering their blemishes the body was usually dressed in socks and underpants before Nilsson draped the victims around him as he talked to the corpse with most victims Nilsson masturbated as he stood alongside or knelt above the body and Nilsson confessed to having occasionally engaged in intercural sex what is intercrural sex, you ask? Thank you for asking, because I googled it. Intercrual sex is when you stick your dick between the thighs and you just rub it around, so you're not actually doing any penetration. He repeatedly stressed to investigators he had never actually penetrated his victims, explaining that his victims were, quote, too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex. But it's okay to kill them, I guess. All the victims' personal possessions were destroyed, and this was to erase the fact that they had an identity and that they were people. And when he did that, that they had now become what Nielsen was describing as a prop in his fantasies. The bodies of the victims killed at his previous address were kept for as long as the decomposition would allow, and then when he saw signs of decomposition, he would stow them beneath the floorboards. If a body didn't have any signs of decomposition, he occasionally alternately stowed it beneath the floorboards and retrieved it again to masturbate and then stood over it or lay alongside the body. Nielsen stated that he had frequently boiled the heads of the victims in a large cooking pot on his stove in order that the internal contents evaporated so that he didn't have to dispose of the brain and the flesh. At the Melrose Avenue address, he typically retained the victim's body for a much longer period of time before disposing of the remains. He kept three or four bodies stowed beneath the floorboards before he started to dissect the remains, which he would wrap in plastic bags and either return under the floorboards or place inside suitcases. On another occasion, he removed the internal organs from the victim's body and placed them in bags, which he then typically dumped behind a fence to be eaten by wildlife. That's gruesome. All the bodies of the victims killed on Melrose Avenue were dismembered after several weeks or months of being under the floorboards because the stench was so bad that when he was dissecting them, he often vomited and he had to brush away the maggots, as we already know. Nevertheless, after dissection, he would masturbate beside the body. He said to say goodbye. When questioned as to whether he had any remorse for his crimes, Nielsen replied, quote, I wished i could stop but i couldn't i had no other thrill or happiness he also emphasized that he took no pleasure from the act of killing but quote worshipped the art and the act of death on february 11th 1983 Nilsson was officially charged with the murder of Stephen sinclair he was transferred to her majesty's prison brixton to be held on remand until his trial in prison he didn't want to wear the uniform He was making a stink. I don't know what it is about the uniform. He didn't want to wear it. He said, I'd rather be naked. And they were like, okay, if that's the case, you're going to be confined to your cell. And at one time, he threw out the contents of his chamber pot, like his toilet. And he threw it out between the bars, and it actually hit two uh, prison officers, which is so disgusting. Can you imagine being hit by his shit? I mean, any shit, but this shit's shit. He was charged with assault. And then he's sent to solitary for 56 days. So he's not the model prisoner. Throughout his committal hearing, he was represented by a lawyer named Ronald Moss. But Nilsson fired him wanting to represent himself. Until he didn't. Then he rehired him. Then he fired him again. then he hired him. And this goes back and forth. Like, what a nightmare. This poor lawyer. I mean, as if your job isn't hard enough, Ronald Moss, to defend this monster... That he, just keeps hire, that he also keeps hiring and firing you? Like, fuck off. Nilsson was going to plead guilty to each charge of murder at his upcoming trial, and with Nilsson's full consent, his lawyer Moss had fully prepared his defense, but then five weeks before his trial, oh, what do you think happened? That's right. Nilsson fired Moss once again and decided to be represented by Ralph Hames, on whose advice Nielsen agreed to plead not guilty by diminished responsibility. Oh, boy. Nielsen was brought to trial on October 24th, 1983, charged with six counts of murder and two of attempted murder. He was tried at the Old Bailey, which is what they call the building because it's on, like, Old Bailey Street, but it's a central criminal court of England and Wales, and it's in central London. And it was before Mr. Justice Croom Johnson, and he pleaded not guilty on all charges. There was no question whether he had Killed the victims just in this state of mind before and during the murders. So the prosecuting counsel argued that Nielsen was sane, in full control of his actions, and killed with premeditation. The defense counsel argued that Nielsen suffered from diminished responsibility and should be convicted only of manslaughter. The prosecution closed his opening speech with an answer Nielsen had given to the police in response to a question as to whether he needed to kill. And Nielsen's response was, quote, at the precise moment of the act of murder, I believe I am right in doing the act. I mean, can't you just court adjourned? Like, can the jury deliberate now? Like, what, what? You have to do more. The first witness to testify was Douglas Stewart, who testified in November 1980. He had fallen asleep in a chair in Nilsen's flat, only to wake up to find his ankles bound to a chair and Nilsen strangling him. Successfully overpowering Nilsson, Stewart testified that Nilsson had then shouted, Take my money! The prosecution argued that Nilsen's rational state of mind told him to yell that to be overheard by other tenants. So it would look like, Nielsen was being robbed by Stewart. Upon cross-examination, the defense counsel pointed to minor inconsistencies in the testimony and the fact Stewart had consumed a lot of booze on the night in question. Carl Stodder also took the stand to tell how, in May 1982, Nielsen had attempted to strangle and drown him before bringing him back to life. Stodder's voice quavered with uh, emotion as he recounted how Nielsen had repeatedly attempted to drown him in the tub, And he had pleaded in vain for his life to be spared. And on several occasions, the judge had to allow Stoddard time to regain his composure. That must have been extremely difficult for him and for the jury to watch that. DCIJ then recounted the circumstances of Nielsen's arrest and his calm, matter-of-fact confessions before reading to the court several statements volunteered by Nielsen following his arrest. In one of these statements, Nielsen says, quote, I have no tears for my victims, I have no tears for myself, nor those bereaved by my action. Jay admitted it was unusual for someone accused of such horrific crimes to be so forthcoming in providing all of this information that he was, and that Nielsen not only provided most of the evidence against himself, but also encouraged discovery of evidence which could contradict his own version of events. Again, this is like when he wrote the letter to the landlord saying the pipes are Blocked Like, you're throwing yourself under the bus. Two psychiatrists tested on behalf of the defense. James McKeith began his testimony on October 26th. McKeith testified that Nilsen experienced difficulty expressing emotion other than anger, and he possessed narcissistic traits, very common in these types of people, an impaired sense of identity, and was able to depersonalize other people. The second psychiatrist to testify for the defense was Patrick Galloway, Diagnosed Nielsen with a borderline false self as if pseudonormal narcissistic personality disorder. That's a lot of words. With occasional, oh, wait, 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 there's more. With occasional outbreaks of schizoid disturbances. Galway stated that in episodic breakdowns, Nielsen became predominantly schizoid acting in an impulsive, violent, sudden manner. And that Nielsen did not appreciate the criminal nature of what he had done. So the jury deliberates their verdict on November 3rd, 1983. The following day, the following day, <laughs> the jury returns with the majority verdict of guilty on six counts of murder and one of attempted murder with a unanimous verdict of guilty in relation to the attempted murder of Knobs. Crom Johnson sentenced Nielsen to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years imprisonment. I don't understand this life in prison. Like, okay, I'm not a judge. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. But why do they say life? Okay, you got life. And then they give them 25 years. Well, but okay, so he could live past that. That's not life, right? And then he has to do a recommendation to serve a minimum of 25 years. So, so what is it? Like what is life is just kind of whatever you want it to be. It's just, I don't know. Life to me sounds like if you get life, then you need to die in prison, right? Is that a thing? somebody let me know if that's a thing following his conviction nilsen was transferred to her majesty's prison warmwood scrubs which is a men's prison as a category a prisoner he was assigned his own cell and could mix freely with other other inmates which excuse me that sounds pretty cushy like i get my own cell and i get to walk around and like mingle with people i don't <laughs> in december 1983 nilsen was cut on the face and chest with a razor blade By another inmate named Albert Moffat, he needed 89 stitches and was moved from that prison to another prison, to another prison, to another prison, to another prison. prison. The minimum term of 25 years imprisonment, which Nielsen was sentenced in 1983, was replaced by a whole life tariff by Home Secretary Michael Howard in December 1994. Which sounds a whole lot better. A whole life tariff. Basically, you're dying here, bitch. You ain't getting out of here. Nielsen accepts this punishment. Great. Good for you. In 2003, Nielsen was again transferred to Her Majesty's Prison Full Sutton, where he remained incarcerated as a Category A prisoner. So, I mean, while he's in prison, he's extremely um, productive. He's doing a lot of stuff. He writes an unpublished 400-page autobiography entitled The History of a Drowning Boy and the title sort of referring to his childhood. Remember, when he was a child, he almost got sucked out to sea and died. A copy of the autobiography remains in the possession of one of the people, basically a pen pal that he had in prison. He sent this unpublished autobiography to this person who is now keeping it. I don't know for what, if they're gonna publish it or release it. Stay tuned. In the autobiography, Nielsen stated that, beginning with his service in the army, he constantly lived two separate lives, his real life and his fantasy life. And with reference to his murders, Nielsen claimed that his emotional state on the dates of the murders in conjunction with the booze he had consumed were both factors in his decision to kill. He emphasized that when feeling low, seizing the opportunity to satisfy his sexual fantasies had developed in which the victim is the young, attractive, passive partner. And he was the older active partner. This part is weird. Several items were taken from Nilsson's Cranley Gardens address and they're on display at the New Scotland Yard's Crime Museum. So I checked this out. It is not open to the public. Um, it is open to people in the police department, but only on appointment. But they actually took things from the Cranley Avenue place as evidence, you know, and then they put it in the Scotland Yard has this crime museum, which would be fascinating to visit. Luckily, They do do exhibits from time to time, not there, but other places. So there was an exhibit called the Crime Museum Uncovered, um, which was held at the museum in London. And there's individual objects that have been on loan to other exhibits at other museums around. So it is possible to see them here and there, but not in one place. Um, In these exhibits, we find that the stove where Nilsen had boiled the heads of his final three victims, we find knives that he used to dissect several of the victims' bodies, the headphones he used to strangle Okenden, um, the ligature he fashioned to strangle his last victim, and, of course, the bath from Cranley Gardens, which he drowned Howlett and kept the body of Allen prior to dissection. On May 10th, 2018, Nielsen was taken from Her Majesty's Prison Full sudden to York Hospital after complaining of severe stomach pains. He had a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, which was repaired, but then he suffered a blood clot from a complication of the surgery, and he finally dies, the motherfucker, on May 12th, 2018. Okay, I need to bring up a few points here. First of all, the fact that he had had a job the entire time he was doing this is fascinating to me, because, well, first of all, it lends itself to the idea that you don't know who you're sitting next to. Um... You know, in a previous episode, we were talking about Luca Magnata, and he got on a plane after murdering somebody. So, you don't know who you're sitting to on a plane, who's sitting next to you. When you go to work, you think you know somebody? Eh. And I'm sure he was reserved, and he kept to himself at work, so he probably didn't, you know, mingle with people. But he showed up to work. He had a job. He held down a steady job. That's more than I can say for myself. This man was off murdering people and not just murdering them. He wouldn't just like murder them in a park and then walk away. This was a project. Like he had to lure them home and then do his business and then take care of the body. So there was no evidence. This is a lot of work. So my thinking is, first of all, your job is not very, mm, your job doesn't really consume a lot of your time. Obviously, he was just punching and punching out. It's, I don't think he was bringing his work home because he had no time when he was home. He was either drunk or killing people or cutting them up. So the fact that he... But the fact that he could hold down this steady job is insane to me. Talk about living two lives. The other thing that comes to mind for me is just the smell. So, I mean... I guess you get used to the smell, but you have decomposing bodies under your floorboards. That doesn't go away. I don't think... You know there's smells that you get used to. Like you walk in somebody's house and you go, oh, they have a certain smell of their house. But then, like 10 minutes later, you don't smell it anymore because you've just become accustomed to whatever that smell was. It was food or, or some kind of cleaning product or something. There, But... But there are some smells that you just do not get, like your your nose does not become accustomed to. And it just doesn't, you know, what's the word? I know there's a word for this. Ne- se- sensory something. Adapti- adaptive. Se- somebody let me know what this is called. But th- there's something, right? It's a thing where like your your nose becomes. A, so So a smell like a decomposing body, this is not a smell that you get used to. It can't be. So he was living in this. So the decision to live like that also is so bizarre to me. And then also that, what, the neighbors didn't smell it? And then he goes to jail. And I'm just thinking, like, for somebody who disrupted so many lives and had just gone on this killing rampage for so many years and being so brutal about it, clearly premeditated not any remorse and to be given a sentence like he got i just it's hard for me to think of this man now in a jail cell. first of all he has his own cell which to me sounds luxurious because you know you watch these prison shows and stuff imagine sharing a cell with two three four people like that would be horrible You never have time to yourself. You never have any alone time. You never, they're always in your face. And chances are, you're not going to like all of them. So you're going to disagree and fight and whatever. So he had his own cell. That sounds pretty cushy to me. And then, never mind that, guess what? While he was in jail, he was able to compose music on a keyboard. He painted. He had pen pals. Like, it sounds like he's at a retreat. It sounds like he's at this, like, weird you know, spiritual retreat, and he's trying to get in touch with himself. And Edwina Monsoon is there. And they're all chanting, like, I I just don't, he's painting, he has pen pals, he's able to read books, he writes his own autobiography, like, he's more productive than most people on the outside. Uh, and, And he's tending to like his inner well being, you know, he doesn't get a right to do that as somebody who committed all these crimes. I don't. There's a bit of a disconnect here for me. He also has subscriptions to magazines. Like, he has magazines delivered, soft porn magazines, Vulcan and him. Not only does he have these magazine subscriptions delivered to him, he has the balls to complain that some of the stories in these magazines were removed. Now, they did did do this. They did remove, which also, like who was reading these magazines and like sort of vetting them and seeing that all the content was appropriate for Nilsen to consume? Like, was it the jail warden? Was it one of the guards? Like who was flipping through this magazine, you know, reading the articles and then say, "Mm, no, not that one. Mm, No, that's too violent. That's going to incite some violence in him. Rip that one out. Yeah. Keep, no, no, keep that. No, just put that in my drawer for later. Yeah just put that one there uh yeah keep going oh no that picture is just no that guy is not his type you better rip that one up put that put it put it in my drawer as well yeah just tuck it under the yeah in the folder in the folder I said like who is doing that it doesn't make any sense and he so Nielsen was getting his subscriptions to the magazines, noticing that they were ripping out you know, certain parts of it for that reason that I said literally they were taking out the articles because they were too violent or they thought it would trigger him in some way. What? So he complained about that. Like, the fact that you have a magazine at all is shocking to me. I didn't know stuff like that happened. Maybe for, like, lower level, like, maybe some drug offenses or something. But for someone of this kind of, like... Murderous, rampagey dissecting cruelty i don't i don't get it, I don't get, it. and then never mind all the side things he doesn't have to work anymore he's got free meals, there's no mortgage, like there's no rent it, it sounds like he had a cushy jail time and and then he dies of like you know his aneurysm thing, which would have happened in or out of prison anyway, so it's not even like he 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 got some like horrible. Ending in the end. So it feels, and I know a lot of people feel vindicated or the families feel like, okay, we got justice. I don't know. I got to question that. And so ends the gruesome and cruel legacy of Dennis Nilsson. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to find the True Gay Crime Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at True Gay Crime. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have an LGBTQ crime story from your city? You can send your story to truegaycrime at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode of the show. Did you know you can subscribe, rate, and review True Gay Crime on Apple Podcasts? It would mean everything to me if you did because it helps me create content you like and it lets Apple know to share it with more people. Thank you for listening. And remember always look behind you, lock your doors. Tell someone where you're going and look out for each other. Why can't we all just get along?